All right, we are back. And at the moment, we're still on a tear. So let's continue talking about political uh, chicanery. There's another opinion piece I want to quote from by Kurt Bardelia. He is admittedly an advisor to both the Democratic National Committee and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, but apparently also a former senior advisor for Republicans on the House Oversight Committee. Ken Bardelia wrote a piece titled, When Democrats Play Defense, Republicans Play Offense. The piece refers to a report in the Washington Post last week, and he says this showed the dynamics that play perfectly between Democrats and Republicans on the January 6th committee. As the Post described, Democrat Representative Stephanie Murphy of Florida insisted the committee focused less on former President Donald Trump and more on the security and intelligence failures that allowed the attack on the Capitol. In response, Republican Vice Chair Liz Cheney of Wyoming argued the committee should keep its focus on the former president. Said Bardalia, that's the best illustration I've come across that demonstrates how different Republicans and Democrats approach things on a tactical and I'd say cellular level. When Republicans have the reins of power, they do not hesitate to go after the very top. From Barack Obama's birth certificate to Hillary Clinton's emails and potentially Hunter Biden's laptop, the GOP is unapologetic about pursuing witch hunts for political gain. Democrats, on the other hand, are always pursuing lines of legitimate oversight reluctantly. At times, they feel like they're apologizing for doing the right thing. I think back to Trump's first impeachment and the hesitant posture displayed by the Democrats during these proceedings. It was almost as if they were forced into it, regretted that it came to this, and moved as fast as possible to get it all over with. Democrats controlled the House majority but never forced Trump administration officials with first-hand knowledge of the events that were at the center of the impeachment inquiry to testify, like John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, or Rick Perry and the Republican-controlled Senate predictably torpedoed any efforts to compel them to testify. History repeated itself during Trump's second impeachment. First 10 witnesses like Mike Pence, Mark Meadows, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trunk, Rudy Giuliani, etc., were never called to testify. Hillary Clinton, of course, was grilled by the Republican-led Benghazi committee for more than 11 hours. It's almost as if Democrats believe there is some prize awaiting them for showing what they would characterize as restraint. Well, there isn't. Some Democrats might think that if they pushed for certain investigative inquiries, that would give Republicans license to seek retribution should they regain power after the midterms this November. Newsflash, they're going to do that anyway. Understand that if the GOP gets back the power of the gavel, they're going to unleash an investigative tsunami against Democrats in the Biden administration that will make the Benghazi circus look like a walk in the park. They will not show any hesitancy or restraint. They will not worry about looking partisan or responsible. They certainly won't care about facts or the truth. Democracy itself is under siege from the Republican Party. Democrats may have just a few months left if control of the House flips in the midterms, to protect and defend our democratic process. They should use every single tool of congressional power to hold the leaders of the January 6th domestic terrorist attack accountable. To which I say, bravo, Mr. Kurt Bardalia. I don't know, dear listener, whether you listen to Terry Gross's program, Fresh Air, but I certainly can recommend it to you highly if you don't. This past week on Fresh Air... It was an extremely engaging interview with Nina Jankowitz. I have to confess, the name didn't register with me. But if you were paying attention, and I have to confess we weren't, you would have noted recently that the Biden administration tried to set up in the Department of Homeland Security a disinformation governance board. We probably need a little background on this. The Boston Globe said, 
The Disinformation Governance Board is dead on arrival, and the cause of death was the same plague it was meant to deal with. The new advisory board was created by the Biden administration's Department of Homeland Security just three weeks ago. This is an article from the June 3rd edition of the magazine. So I guess this place is, I'm not, I'm not sure the date, it's, it's early May. We're, we're just barely into June, early May, Disinformation Government Board gets established ostensibly to counter lies such as the disinformation coming from Russia ahead of the midterm elections and claims of human smugglers trying to entice Latin Americans into traveling into the U.S. The massive flood of propaganda and false narratives pouring from the Internet is a serious problem worth addressing. Yet, conservatives immediately attacked the board as an Orwellian ministry of truth that would censor free speech. Marcella Garcia, writing in the Boston Globe, says, well, it did have an embarrassing rollout. The DHS failed to explain the board's limited purpose and purview. It became a self-inflicted political wound for the White House. That's actually, it seems pretty hard to find anybody besides Nina Jankowitz herself who was defending this board. Said New York Magazine, the board was a doomed idea from the start. It doesn't take any great leap of conspiratorial thinking to find fault with a disinformation board under the aegis of an agency called Homeland Security. No matter who's in power, government officials are professional liars and their lies become even more brazen whenever national security is invoked. Imagine a disinformation board in the hands of a second Trump administration. Well, as Kurt Bardelia might point out, they're not going to need a disinformation bureau to put out lies if there's a second Trump administration. Hello. But back to Jankowitz, a very intelligent woman. She's written a new book titled How to Be a Woman Online, which is a handbook for fighting against online harassment of women, which she received more than her share. She'd previously written a book titled How to Lose the Information War. It's on Russian use of disinformation as geopolitical strategy. Jankowitz, it should be noted, was a double major in Russian and political science. She graduated from Bryn Mawr in 2011 and spent a semester at Herzden State Pedagogical University in Russia. In 2017, she was a Fulbright Fellow in Kiev, working with the Foreign Ministry of Ukraine. She also served as a Disinformation Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and as a supervisor of the Russia and Belarus programs at the National Democratic Institute. And Ms. Miller does point out that this, this could be indication she'd been turned by the Russians. Could be. But it would be my feeling that if she was actually with the Russians, the conservatives here in America would probably be okay with her. And apparently the conservatives really teed off on Nina Jankowitz about the fact that she had tweeted or retweeted comments made during the debates between Biden and Trump about the Hunter Biden laptop. And just the fact that she repeated what they had to say was not liked by the conservatives. And believe you me, there's more to the Hunter Biden laptop story than we know about. We're not going to step into that quicksand today. But if you're interested in hearing a defense of why America could use something like a disinformation board, I would suggest that you, on your own, check out what she had to say on Fresh Air. Let's take a moment to go to the, the rest of the world and how it's misusing big tech. And we should mention at the onset that, that a lot of the control that other dictators and bad governments will exercise over their populations comes through withholding the Internet. And here's a troubling datum right here from the United States, writing in the New York Times, Ezra Klein noted that... Donald Trump was right about TikTok. Well, I'm glad he was right about something. Says Klein, adopted by youth around the world, TikTok's growth is nothing like we've seen before. It has more active users than Twitter, more U.S. watch minutes than YouTube, more app downloads than Facebook, and more site visits than Google. 
Unlike those Silicon Valley tech giants, though, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, a Chinese company. This has spurred concern about data espionage, which Trump highlighted as a reason that TikTok should be controlled by a U.S. firm. Hey, how about one controlled by Larry Ellison? But notes Klein, TikTok's real power isn't over our data, it's over what users watch and create. Last month, I gave a lecture, he said, at a college in South Carolina and asked students where they like to get their news. Almost everyone said TikTok. That's troubling, because since the fighting broke out in Ukraine, the platform has been thick with videos backing the Russian narratives. What makes TikTok insidious is that the propaganda isn't overt. It's embedded within streams of makeup tutorials and recipes and lip sync videos. China has long seen America's social media platforms as potential weapons, which is why it has erected a firewall against them on its own. And since folks around the world are now getting their, including people here in the United States, college students here in the United States are getting their news through social media. And I'm not sure whether you could call TikTok social media. Yeah, I guess, sure. I guess if you're, you know, posting a 30-second video of you doing the boogaloo for everybody to see, I guess that's socializing. I suppose so. But The Economist noted in its May 7th issue that um, governments are finding insidious ways to muzzle the media. Technology is being used to make life hell for uppity hacks. New tools make it easier for governments to spy on people. Investigations last year found that Pegasus, an eavesdropping software developed by the Israelis, had been slipped into the mobile phones of almost 200 journalists to read their messages, track them, and identify their sources. Social media can be used to harass reporters. A survey found that almost three-quarters of female journalists have endured online abuse, which may have explained why Nina Jankowicz got her book out about how females can fight back online. In India, critics of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi faced torrents of death and rape threats from Hindu nationalist trolls who sometimes publish their addresses and invite vigilantes to visit them. According to The Economist, press freedom is in decline around the world. About 85% of people live in countries where it has been constricted in the past five years. In a piece we have from February of last year, Kelvin Chan wrote, When army generals in Myanmar stage a coup last week, referring to February of 2021, they briefly cut internet access in an apparent attempt to stymie protests. In Uganda, residents couldn't use Facebook, Twitter, or other social media for weeks after a recent election. In Ethiopia's northern Tigray region, the internet has been down for months amid a wider conflict. We've been meaning to investigate the situation in the Philippines, where Facebook sort of became the internet for most Filipinos. A little unclear on how that worked. But I do know that it had something to do with the, um, the return of the Marcoses to power. Writing in Rappler, Rochelle Ellen Bernito said the Marcos network has painstakingly seeded disinformation on Facebook for years, growing pro-Marcos narratives as the family plotted its political comeback. But here's a line that really caught me up short here in this discussion of the Philippines. Marcos supporters have lied, said the Rappler, that the family's wealth comes from gold, not the state billions they pilfered when they fled. Well, hold the phone. The idea that the Marcos family extracted lots of gold apart from what they stole from the government out of the Philippines, ties us back to what we were talking about on the show some weeks back, the fascinating series of books put out by Sterling Seagrave. One of them, devoted specifically to the Marcos regime, addresses this issue of um, Japanese gold repatriated by certain people in the Philippines. 
and the Japanese royal family and well-connected Japanese people and a lot of others who managed to get their hands on maps of where the gold was stored. It's a riveting story we need to discuss at some point after, after, after mentioning this to uh, our pharmacologic correspondent, Howard McKinney. Howard went out and grabbed a copy of the book and wrote back and said, wow, maybe we'll bring Howard on to talk about this. And of course, the internet battles going on in different countries aren't necessarily from autocratic bad governments. Down in Costa Rica, the president says the country is at war with a Russia-linked ransomware group that has infiltrated numerous government institutions, disabling the government's payment system for municipal services, as well as its tax and custom systems. This comes in a report in TechCrunch by Carly Page. They know that the hacking group known as Conti has doubled its original ransom to $20 million and threatened to overthrow the government by means of a cyber attack, urging citizens to go out in the streets and demand payment. Wow. Cybersecurity experts say Costa Rica was likely unlucky and targeted as part of wider operations. Costa Rican President Rodrigo Chavez, whose term only began on May 8th, has blamed his predecessor for not taking cybersecurity seriously enough. And I think we should segue away from beating up on tech to beating up on the, those who would overturn Roe v. Wade. And wouldn't you know it, there's a link between the evils of surveillance technologic surveillance of all of us and the current moves to overturn Roe v. Wade. Because, as noted by Jeffrey Fowler and Tatum Hunter in the Washington Post, your smartphone already knows if you've had an abortion or are considering one. The newspaper notes that with the prospect of Roe v. Wade being overturned, privacy experts have raised the alarm about data collection from tech giants like Google and Facebook, as well as innumerable apps that could become a major liability for people seeking abortions in states that prohibit them. Tech companies collect vast amounts of personal data, which is an easy target for subpoenas from law enforcement seeking evidence of criminal activity through recorded messages, search histories, health data, and other information. States that criminalize abortion may seek to prosecute through such evidence because of the ways accessing abortion has changed since 1973. For instance, mail-order pills can now be found through a Google search. In 2017, prosecutors in Mississippi even used internet searches for abortion drugs as evidence in a woman's trial for the death of her fetus. This is a real concern. By the way, if that leaked uh, Supreme Court draft opinion authored by Sam Alito in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade reflects what the decision is going to be, there apparently are not going to be exceptions made for rape or incest. And, fresh from the headlines, the knuckleheads composing the Oklahoma legislature voted 73-16 to last week to pass a bill prohibiting nearly all abortions, allowing private individuals also to sue anyone who aids or abets an abortion after the moment of fertilization. This comes on top of an April law that set a penalty of up to 10 years in prison for abortion providers. The bill excludes the morning-after pill, but bars medical abortions with pills such as mifepristone. It prohibits terminating in a pregnancy, resulting from rape or incest, unless those crimes were reported to law enforcement. Asked about the effect on rape and incest survivors, the bill's sponsor, Wendy Stearman, said, I'm okay with preserving the life of the child, who she said was not part of that decision. Uh, I guess the decision to commit rape or incest. No, no, I guess not. And frankly, I cannot resist at this point quoting from the late, great George Carlin, who once said, boy, these conservatives are really something, aren't they? They're all in favor of the unborn. They will do anything for the unborn. But once you're born, you're on your own. 
pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine months. After that, they don't want to hear from you. No neonatal care, no daycare, no head start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you're preborn, you're fine. If you're preschool, you're screwed. Anyway, it does seem the Supreme Court sometime this month is going to come up with a decision that is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. The only question is, how thoroughly will it be overturned? Which brings up the subject of the doctrine of stare decisis. For those of you who are not law school graduates, we would note that stare decisis is a centuries-old legal principle stating that judges should defer to past interpretations of statutes and the Constitution. It comes from the Latin expression, stare decisis et non quieta movere, meaning to stand by things decided and not disturb the calm. Erring on the side of upholding precedents make the law seem even-handed and predictable, then Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote in 1984. We have to run through that one again. Erring on the side of upholding precedent makes the law seem even-handed. Justice Louis Brandeis had gone further back in 1932 when he wrote, In most matters, it is more important that the applicable rule of law be settled than it be settled right. This really inspires confidence in the judicial system, does it not? Periodically throughout U.S. history, about 232 times to be precise, the justices of the Supreme Court have disregarded stare decisis and overruled their predecessors. A 5-4 to four conservative majority appears poised to do just that with Roe v. Wade. And we should note that three of those people among that five majority were appointed by Donald J. Trump, a man who lost the popular vote by almost 3 million in 2016, but who nevertheless became president and appointed three justices that will overturn a law that is favored by 70% of the U.S. population. Writing about this in the Week magazine, their briefing section addressed the question of when can precedent be overruled with whenever a majority of the Supreme Court justices feel like it. Some legal scholars argue that a select group of old landmark cases should be considered irreversible, super precedent. But the court has observed repeatedly that stare decisis is not an inexorable command. To the question, what's been overturned, the briefing says some of the Supreme Court's most momentous decisions rejected precedent, perhaps most famously in 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education, which ended racial segregation in public schools and overturned the, quote, separate but equal, unquote, doctrine established in an 1896 ruling, Plessy versus Ferguson. One of our most memorable talks we've ever had on Radio Parallax came with uh, lawyer Michael G. Trachtman. He wrote a book titled The Supreme's Greatest Hits, the Supreme Court cases that most directly affect your life. He wrote one volume with the number being 34, then he did a second edition with 37. The, the 37 book was written in June of 2009. There's a lot that's happened since, and um, even though he has not written another book to our knowledge, Michael Track was someone we really want to bring back on this program. The briefing section poses the question, is there an ideological pattern to turning your back on stare decisis. And the answer is given as, legal scholars like to joke that stare decisis is Latin for stand by things decided when it suits our purposes. 
Every justice claims to respect stare decisis, but both liberals and conservatives have attacked their rivals for abandoning precedent when ideologically convenient. Anyway, at this point, I think we should excerpt from our 2006 interview with Michael J. Trackman. We asked about probably the worst Supreme Court decision of all time. Certainly, the case could be made for the Dred Scott decision being the worst ever. When a freed slave brought back to a slave state tried to assert the fact that he was now a free man, the 1857 Supreme Court ruled that he had no standing. He couldn't even argue in court. He was property, not a person. I couldn't resist bringing up a more recent decision, which I thought was quite atrocious, that of Bush v. Gore, and how it certainly appeared to be a naked political decision rather than something reasoned out judiciously, and this is what Trackman had to say. He segues from that into the discussing Brown v. Board. For for this correspondent, there's a recent decision uh, I found indefensible, uh, wrong, and, and almost on par with Dred Scott which I think we just want to mention uh, a bit about, 2000's Bush versus Gore. Uh, you note in the book this decision was criticized by many legal scholars, uh, comparing it to Dred Scott. And my question for you is, might we look back on Bush v. Gore as maybe the Dred Scott decision of the 21st century? We might. It can be argued as to whether it, it will have had the lasting effect that Dred Scott did. Um, but it, it, in a way, it's a decision that has, has the potential of crumbling the moral authority of the Supreme Court. And, and remember, the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. The Supreme Court doesn't have any way to enforce its decisions. It, it banks on its moral authority. And to the extent that the Supreme Court erodes its own moral authority by making decisions which appear to be politically motivated instead of motivated by an, an objective and neutral view of the law, well, then we're all in trouble. Because if, if the Supreme Court can't enforce its decisions, if what the Supreme Court says does not go, then there is really no way that any individual can enforce the liberties provided by our Constitution. That would be the most significant constitutional crisis in our history. Let's go back to some triumphs of the Supreme Court, uh, starting with um, 1954's Brown versus Board of Education and, and the case it overturned the famous 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson, which really validated an apartheid system here in America. Those two cases are really fine examples of the good and the bad, and more directly, the process by which our law evolves through the Supreme Court. You know, the, the words in the Constitution stay the same. There, there's, there's equal protection under law in the Constitution. And, and as a matter of fact, words to that effect are literally carved in stone on, on the entrance to the Supreme Court building itself. Those words didn't change, but the interpretation and application of those words changed as over the course of 50 years as, as the Supreme Court composition changed. Uh, back in the Plessy versus Ferguson case, the Supreme Court issued a ruling that said equal protection under law can be had by separate but equal accommodations in this country, by a segregated society, separate but equal accommodations in restaurants and transportation and, and, and all of the rest of it. That, that was, of course, a joke. The, the, the uh, accommodations were separate, but they certainly weren't equal. The schools were separate, but they certainly weren't equal. And the law looked the other way. Over the course of time, however, uh, Chief Justice Warren went on, the, went on the court, and Brown versus Board of Education was brought by a cadre of lawyers that are good marshal, headed the team later to become a Supreme Court justice himself, arguing that separate but equal is not equal protection. It simply doesn't work. Uh, and the Supreme Court issued Brown versus Board of Education, which uh, ruled unconstitutional the notion of segregation, desegregated the schools, and in the process really set 
down the tone that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and which really led to the entire civil rights movement and, and, and the movement where the quest for equality became woven into the fabric of our society, much more so than it had been previous to that decision. So many view that decision as the most important decision of the 20th century, the decision which set the tone in, in deeds as well as words that this country would stand for equality. Imperfectly, obviously, you know, there, there's still a lot to be done, but that ingrained it into the law, unlike the way it was previous to that decision. It's a sad thing to contemplate that the Warren Court back in 1954 moved the country forward in the way of uh, giving people more rights. And here in 2022, we're facing a momentous, anti-starry, decisive decision that's going to take away rights. The rest of the world is looking at this amazed. Journalist Christina Bergman, writing in Deutsche Welle in Germany, said nearly half a century ago, women in America won the right to self-determination. Yet their worst nightmare is about to come true. The U.S. Supreme Court's on the verge of overturning Roe v. Wade, even though 70% of Americans support the 1973 ruling. Women are angry, and protesters last week in many cities and on social media were merely a tremor compared to what's to come. Lamad noted that the powerful Federalist Society and other interest groups have successfully waged a long-term insurgent effort to install arch-conservative jurists throughout the court system and enable the Supreme Court to take bodily autonomy away from women. After Trump won the presidency despite losing the popular vote, he appointed three far-right justices who were confirmed by the U.S. Senate where the least populated and most conservative states are systematically overrepresented. That is not democracy. It's the tyrannical minority in action. The Guardian said Europeans must prepare to fight their own battles. We too are threatened by American far-right groups whose tentacles have spread across the Atlantic. The Heritage Foundation, backed by the DeVos and Koch families, has invited prominent Tory leaders to discuss free speech. In the second edition of Michael Trachtman's book, near the end he addresses the question of does political philosophy matter more than judicial philosophy on the Supreme Court? He said, take Bush v. Gore. Most legal scholars agree that a conservative judicial philosophy would have dictated a hands-off approach. There's nothing in the Constitution that militates in favor of interfering with a state's determinations respecting its elections methods, which are typically left to state discretion. Yet, the judicial conservatives in the court voted to intervene in Florida's procedure and stop the recount, effectively awarding the presidency to George W. Bush. Judicial conservatives seemingly engaged in judicial activism. To which Mr. Merlin adds, seemingly... He also notes it was judicial conservatives who took an activist stance and, and overruled legislation passed by the country's elected representatives and signed on by the president, all of whom would conclude that the influence of money and the political process must be blunted. Well, this is years before Citizens United was handed down by the court, by conservatives on the court. And you can bet that'll be topic A if we bring Mr. Trackman back. If you take the time to examine Roe versus Wade, you'll find out it's a very well-thought-out decision. I shudder to think what we're going to get in its place. And you know, we wouldn't be facing this, this grim moment had not Mitch McConnell and the Republicans blocked Merrick Garland from the Supreme Court as Barack Obama would have placed him. And also, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had had the good sense to retire from the court during the Obama presidency, she could have been replaced by someone of her same philosophical outlook. Instead, we have a conservative in her place. 
Mr. Millen asked the question of how many times a one-term president, let alone a one-term president who didn't win by a majority, get to appoint three justices, and I don't know the answer, but we'll have it for you by next week, I hope. Anyway, sorry for the lack of levity in today's program, but sometimes things just aren't that damn funny. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax, and I'll tell you what, on next week's show, we'll, we'll try to lighten the load a little bit. We'll see you then. I'm Douglas Everett. You just keep-